When I left home to attend college, I had been a Christian for less than one year. And I was eager to grow in my faith, and so I quickly became involved in the Christian group on our college campus. And for the very first time in my life, I was exposed to the diversity of the community of faith. You see, I'd grown up in in a white middle-class suburb, and I had spent most of my life around people like me. Now, there were about 50 people in the Christian group on campus, and there were many of them that were like me, but there were many of them that were not like me. And so I got acquainted with Cindy, the farmer's daughter from the Midwest. I'd never known a farmer in my life. Then there was Alex, the African-American from inner city Los Angeles. Javier, whose family had immigrated from Mexico. And then Barney. Barney was Jewish. But he had come to acknowledge Jesus as his Messiah. All of these people were so different from me, but they deeply loved Jesus as I did. And I have to say that it was not always easy to be in community together because of our differences, and yet we trusted the Holy Spirit to show us how we could find unity through Jesus Christ. We met regularly for prayer and Bible study, and and we started to read and discuss the book of Acts. And as a very new believer, I had not known that virtually all of the early Christians came from a Jewish background. That was news to me. And here we are reading through the book of Acts, and chapter after chapter, we're reading about Jews who became followers of Jesus. And I looked around at our group, and I said, everybody I'm reading about sounds like Barney. (laughs) How did... How did the rest of us get into this? When did God start to invite non-Jews into the community of faith? And then we got to Acts chapter 10. And then I got my answer. Because that's where we learn that God is serious about bringing the good news of the kingdom of God to everyone. But here's what we also need to understand. The Jewish believers couldn't grasp it. They had struggled for a long time to understand what it meant to represent God in the world. And even though God had made it very clear. God had called the Jews to himself as a people, but he said, I want you to be a light to the world so that people who are not Jews will understand my goodness. That's what God wanted. Yet they kept turning inward not outward. They kept creating barriers between themselves and the unbelieving world. So God then sends Jesus, and who does Jesus come for? He comes to die for the world, not just for the Jewish people. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches this spontaneous sermon, and he reiterates the universality of this message that the invitation of God is for everyone. Peter's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he concludes his sermon with this amazing promise, an incredible invitation. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And here's the key point. This promise is for you, the people listening to him, your children, subsequent generations, and for all who are far off. Not some. All. All. 
And yet Peter himself doesn't even understand the implications of what he's saying. He, like all of us, is a prisoner of his preconceptions, and he's been conditioned to believe that only the Jewish people are fully acceptable to God. The Jews are the insiders. So Peter thinks all refers to all the people who are like him. It certainly doesn't include Gentiles. Gentiles are outsiders. And changing this thinking is the next vital step in God's unfinished business of building his kingdom. Jesus wants everyone to be included in the kingdom of God because all means all. And as we're about to see, God drives this message home by confronting Peter with the narrowness of his understanding of the kingdom of God. And so this story begins with a Gentile, a Gentile named Cornelius, who we encounter in the book of Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. Now, as we read that, we need to remember that the Jewish Christians consider Gentiles to be spiritual outsiders. And this story revolves around Cornelius, and he's a prime example of an outsider in the view of the Jews. And verse 1 makes this painfully clear. He's not only a Gentile, he lives in Caesarea. Now, that city is the headquarters of the Roman Empire that occupies Israel. Rome has taken over that city. It's filled with Gentiles. And they've even built a temple there devoted to the worship of the emperor, Caesar Augustus. Every faithful Jew considers Caesarea to be a city full of heathen idol worshipers. And that's where Cornelius lives. But it gets worse. He's a centurion which means he's a military officer, which means he represents the might and power that has overthrown the independence of Israel and turned them into a vassal state. And it gets worse because Cornelius is part of the Italian regiment, which means he comes from the heart of the Roman Empire. He plays for the home team. So this man has a Gentile name, he lives in a Gentile city, he's a Gentile military man, and he's Italian. In the eyes of every Jew, including those Jews who become followers of Jesus, Cornelius is the living image of a pagan, heathen dog. He is an outsider's outsider. And yet somehow, some way, this man has become a worshiper of God. 
We don't know how that happened. Maybe it was when he started to look up at the sky and considered the vastness of the heavens. Maybe it was when he saw the beauty of creation. Maybe it was when he noticed the rhythms and seasons and cycle of life and became convinced that there was order in the universe that could not have happened by accident. We don't know. But however it occurred, Cornelius reached out to God and somehow God connected with him and Cornelius became a man of faith based on the limited understanding that he had. And it changed his life as we see here. He lived out his faith. But the fact that Cornelius became a believer is a great reminder that the Holy Spirit always is at work in this world striving to open the eyes of men and women and draw them to God. Now, the Jews may believe that Cornelius is unfit for God. But God obviously has a different view. And so Cornelius, this spiritual outsider from the perspective of the Jews, gets a personal visit from an angel of God. And God is going to dramatically draw Cornelius and his family and his friends into the community of faith. And he's going to do it by recalibrating the worldview of Peter and the other apostles. And so, this angel is going to tell Cornelius, go get Peter. Look what happens next. The angel said, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. So Cornelius is in Caesarea. Peter's staying in Joppa, about 35 miles away. And, and Cornelius has no idea who this guy Peter is. But the angel says, you need to go get him and bring him back. And the angel even identifies the very house where Peter's staying. It is a very specific vision and a very specific message. And what is it that Cornelius does? He chooses to trust what he sees and he trusts what he hears. And so he sends some men to invite Peter to come to his house. Now let's face it, this is a very odd and unusual vision. And I find myself wondering, what would you or I do in such a circumstance? Would we trust? Would we respond with faith or would we respond with doubt? I hope we'd respond like Cornelius because God speaks through this angel and Cornelius listens and acts. So that's part one of this story, Cornelius, the outsider. And as God is preparing him and, and, and sending his men to, to Peter, God then is preparing Peter for this unexpected visit. And Peter, Peter views himself as the ultimate insider. He's a Jew. He's acknowledged Jesus as his Messiah, and he was one of the hand-picked disciples. And this insider is about to get a very disturbing and unsettling vision from God. 
Look what happens next in verse 9. About, the, about noon the following day, as they were on their journey, that's the men coming from, excuse me, from Cornelius, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied, so he knows who's speaking. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately, the sheet was taken back to heaven. This is a bizarre vision. I mean, it's just strange. Peter's Peter's just trying to pray. And here comes this sheet lowered down from heaven, and it looks like it's filled with the wild animal park. And the Lord speaks to him and says, Eat up, Peter. Now, as Peter says here, he's a faithful Jew, which means he faithfully follows the Jewish dietary laws, and those laws differentiate between clean and unclean foods, and a lot of these animals are considered unclean, and Peter would never eat an unclean animal because he believes it would defile him. It would make him spiritually unfit. For the same reason, Peter never associates with an unclean person like a Gentile a non-Jew, because he believes it will defile him. And God is now setting a different standard. He says, you need to know, Peter, that whatever I say is clean is clean. And so some animals make better food than others, but, but animals are not inherently spiritually impure. You're not defiled if you eat an animal. It's okay to eat the ones you want to eat. And likewise, there's a metaphor here. He's telling Peter, people are not inherently spiritually impure. You can't isolate yourself from them and create barriers between you and them because there's no one that's beyond the reach of God. That sets up the story. Now, the rest of it's quite lengthy, and I want to summarize what happens in verses 17 to 43. As you read forward, what we find is this, that Peter initially has no idea what this vision means, but he gets an inkling when Cornelius' men almost immediately arrive after the vision ends. And so Peter's just seen this image of unclean foods. And maybe, just maybe, God is talking to him about unclean people, like these Gentile outsiders who've just shown up. And this is where God begins to transform Peter's view of people who are not like him. You see, Peter understands that there might sometimes be a handful of exceptional Gentiles who somehow might become acceptable to God. After all, his fellow apostle Philip once even baptized an Ethiopian government official. That was pretty cool. 
But Peter and the other apostles view that kind of thing as the exception and not the rule. They're willing to accept a Gentile here and a Gentile there, but not Gentiles, Gentiles everywhere. Their entire focus is to get fellow Jews, people like them, to accept Jesus as their Messiah. And because Gentiles are viewed as unclean outsiders, the Jewish believers don't even think about Gentiles. They're not worried about the fact that they're spiritually lost people who need God. And so God puts Gentiles squarely on Peter's radar by sending this delegation from Cornelius. And these visitors show up and they say to Peter, Cornelius is a great man of faith and he wants to learn more about God from you. And so Peter, the next day, heads off to Cornelius' house. And I am absolutely convinced he would not have done so without that vision from God. And when Peter and his friends arrive in Caesarea, they get a bit of a surprise because Cornelius has gathered a crowd. There's family, there's friends, there's servants, and they're all there to listen to this apostle of Jesus tell them more about God. Peter came probably expecting to meet Cornelius, you know, one random Gentile. And now he's confronted by an entire household full of Gentiles. It's enough to cause a decent Jew to break out in hives. And how does Peter respond? With condescension. Despite the fact that Cornelius has expressed interest in learning more about God, Peter makes it clear, I'm doing you a favor to be here. You know, as a Jew, I don't don't associate with people like you. However, God said I shouldn't call anyone impure, so so here I am. I find myself wondering if you and I ever overtly or covertly communicate that kind of message to people we encounter who are not like us. Do we ever act like we're spiritually or ethnically better than other people? You see, Peter's not there out of love or concern for the spiritual condition of this man. He's only there out of, out of obedience because he felt goaded by God. What's great, though, is that despite his obvious discomfort with the situation, he gets an invitation to explain more about God, and he preaches a short message about Jesus. Jesus, who was proclaimed by the Jewish prophets. Jesus, who died and rose from the grave and came back to life. And oh, by the way, uh, Cornelius, not everybody got to see the resurrected Jesus, but, but I did. I was one of the chosen witnesses. This whole encounter is infused with Peter's spiritual and ethnic pride. But something amazing happens. Peter is really just getting warmed up. He's barely started his message, and before he even finishes his sermon, God himself takes overt action to welcome these spiritually seeking Gentiles into his kingdom. Look what happens next in verses 44 to 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, he's still preaching, and the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, that's the Jews, 
who had come with Peter, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit, key phrase, just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days because they're eager to learn more. Now what God does here is profound because he recreates the day of Pentecost miracle. Only this time he does it for Gentiles instead of for Jews. I call this the day of Pentecost for the rest of us. This is the day of Pentecost for people who are not ethnic Jews. God sends the Holy Spirit to fill the minds and the hearts and the lives of the Gentiles listening to Peter. And the evidence is that they speak in tongues and they give praise to God. Now, speaking in tongues means speaking a foreign language. But we've got to peel away the layer here to understand what's happening because the Jews and Gentiles all speak Greek. That's a known common language. So if Peter's preaching and suddenly Cornelius starts praising God in Greek, that might be interesting, but it wouldn't be a miracle. You see, for this to be an attention-grabbing miracle, the Gentiles need to speak in languages they don't know but would be known to the Jews. Otherwise, all Peter and his gang will hear is gibberish. So I think that at least some of these Gentiles miraculously speak Hebrew. And just picture this. Peter is there reluctantly talking to this group of people that he thinks are beneath him. And God's Spirit comes down and suddenly Cornelius or someone else in that group starts loudly praising God in Peter's native language. Oh, that would rock him to the core. It's a wake-up call. Peter. And once God acts, Peter has no choice. If God has given these Gentiles the gift of the Holy Spirit, then they need to be baptized right away to demonstrate their faith and to receive new life through Jesus Christ. What a dramatic story. We need to ask, why why does God do it this way though? Why does he interrupt Peter Why doesn't he at least wait until Peter finishes preaching? I believe he does it because Peter's there only grudgingly. And he's stuck in a worldview that labels these Gentiles as outsiders. And God knows that Peter will not do what needs to be done. So God takes the initiative to welcome these spiritual seekers into his kingdom. It is a phenomenal event and it should be a cause for great celebration because new souls have now been added into God's family they're part of his kingdom but guess what the Jewish believers don't celebrate they can't accept the fact that all means all and they just can't believe that God would welcome Gentiles into the kingdom and to do so as spiritual equals to Jews by giving them the same gift. And 
so as the story continues in chapter 11, we find that Peter gets called on the carpet. His fellow Jewish Christians call him to account for taking part in what they believe to be an unseemly incident. And as Peter stands there before his fellow Jewish Christian believers, to his credit, he gives an accurate account of what's occurred. He makes it clear that God was in charge of of these events. And if God's in charge, and if God has decided to do this, it means that Peter and all of the other Jewish Christians must be willing to embrace what God has decided. And as Peter speaks, one thing becomes indelibly clear. When it comes to the opportunity to be part of God's kingdom, there are no outsiders. And we see that in chapter 11, verses 15 to 18. This is Peter speaking to his fellow Jewish Christians, telling them about what happened. He said, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Equal treatment for the Gentiles. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? We can't get in the way of what God wants to do. And we can't get in the way of who God wants to bring into his kingdom. When they heard this, they had no further objections. And here's where we see the heart change. They praised God, saying, so then, still a little arrogance here, even to Gentiles, (laughs) even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. I, I don't think we fully can grasp this until we realize the innate level of disgust that Jews had for the Gentiles. But it's the only way to explain their reaction. Even the Gentiles get to repent. Even the Gentiles get to be forgiven. Even the Gentiles get the gift of the Holy Spirit just like us. There are spiritual equals and they cannot believe that these lowly pagan dogs are no longer lowly pagan dogs. They are brothers and sisters in the faith. They're equals in the sight of God. And so as a result of what God has done on this incredible day, the Jewish believers finally recognize that God does want everyone to be saved from their sins and to get a fresh start through Jesus. The kingdom of God is intended to be an incredibly diverse community of faith consisting of Jews and Gentiles. And we need to remember that Gentile is not a race. It's a catch-all term. And it includes Africans and Arabs and Asians and Europeans. It includes everybody who's not a Jew. It includes people from every nation, every tribe, and every language group because the promise of God is offered not to some but to all. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and this promise is for you who are listening and for your children in subsequent generations and for all, all, all who are far off. 
no boundaries, no limits. Because God wants everyone to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and enter into his kingdom. No one is outside that promise from God. And that promise that Peter spoke through the influence of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, it was true then. And it was true here on this day when Cornelius and his family and friends were received into the community of faith. And that promise is just as true today. And it's a promise that's desperately needed in our world today. So what do you and I do with this amazing story? How do we let it shape our lives? First, I, I think we need to realize that this is not just a Bible story. This is history. And this day changed the world. You may not realize it, but prior to this day, virtually every god and every religion was associated with a specific nation and culture and ethnic group. And I could recite example after example. Molech was the god of the Ammonites. And when the Ammonite empire faded out, so did their god. Because he was a made-up god. Asher was a god of the Assyrians. And when their empire faded out, so did their god. Because he was a made-up god. And the God of the Bible is not a made-up God. He's the creator of heaven and earth. But up until this point, because the Jews had turned inward, he was primarily the God of the Jews. From this point forward, he is the God for everyone. And because of what God did on this day, the Christian community became the first truly global international community of faith. And if you look at the demographics, even today, most every other religion in the world is dominated by one or at most two ethnic groups. But not Christianity. There are followers of Jesus on every continent among all different kinds of people because of what God did with Cornelius and Peter on this day. It changed history. And because it changed history and it changed the outreach of the church, then Gentiles like me got to be included in the community of faith. And unless you are here and you have Jewishness in your background somewhere, we need to say thank you, Lord, for what you did on this day. That's why I get to be part of your family. When God says all, he means all. Even people like me. Now, unfortunately, sometimes God's people forget this very central aspect of our faith. And like Peter, we can sometimes, even unintentionally, put limits on who we think is acceptable to God. And we can start to define community based on our own definitions rather than God's. That was the mistake Peter made. And I believe we need to wrestle with this issue and ask ourselves some tough questions. Are there people that we view as outsiders and not worth our time? When that Mormon missionary or Jehovah's Witness comes knocking on your door, is that just an irritating interruption? Or could we see that person 
as someone in the mold of Cornelius, perhaps. A spiritual seeker, somebody hungry for God. They just don't have the correct information and the full story. And maybe they're there not to irritate us. Maybe they're at our door because God is arranging a divine appointment like he arranged between Peter and Cornelius. And maybe that person is there so that you can plant a seed and help them take a step closer to the kingdom of God. Here's a question that can get a little harder. Are there certain nationalities or ethnic groups that we tend to disparage, that we can't be bothered with? If a black or Hispanic or Asian or Arab moved in next door, would you be a good neighbor? Would you befriend them and get to know them? Would you look for ways to help them see Jesus? Or would we fall into the mistake and the trap that Peter made, viewing those people as ethnically inferior? That's what he and his fellow Jews did with people like Cornelius for so long. There was an ethnic division there, but God graciously on this day in Cornelius' house helped them to get beyond that. And I hope if we have struggles like Peter had struggles that we will help that we will let God help us get beyond that. I find myself wondering if, if Peter was here this morning, what would he say to us about this day? I think he'd say it was one of the most defining moments in his life. It was a moment when he let go of his ethnic and spiritual pride and learn to enlarge his vision of the kingdom of God. And I believe he would urge us not to fall into the pattern of thinking that had captured him for so long. He would say to us, when God says all, he means all. And so I believe this story ultimately leaves us with a question. Who is God placing in your life? Who is God placing in my life that's like Cornelius, someone that we might tend to view as an outsider. And how can we extend God's welcome to that person and invite them to experience new life in the kingdom of God?